No ums. If you say um, I'm going to kick you in your shin. <laughs> okay, I'm going to try really hard <clears throat> and keep my legs far away. Well, what's up, friends, and welcome to The Debrief, a weekly Q&A podcast from your friends here at Sandals Church. I know you're used to hearing Justin Party here, but he is actually out of town, so we are hosting the podcast today with our very good friend, Claude Hickman. What's up, Claude? The Claude, as he's known everywhere else on earth, (laughs) the Claude. And don't worry, folks, we brought Matt Brown safe and sound back from India. Yep, I'm here, had a little fluids today, and no (laughs) runs, so I am energized and ready to not just deliver the word, but deliver some meat. Yeah. So if you listen to the sermons, we are keeping track of all of your bowel movements My months, yeah. It's- How sick were you? You know, because I thought you were just being a girl about it, but it sounds like- <laughs> Whoa, sexist. I, well, we did start calling him princess sexist. over there. Just Hillary 2016 sticker right there, buddy. Okay. You know, Stephanie, I've agreed, truth and love, you've used up all your poop emojis for the rest of the year though. No, Absolutely. I was sick. I was really, really sick. Hey, listen, bowel movement communication is key on the mission field. I'm just telling you. You got to talk. You're going you're gonna to grow in new ways that you never thought you were going to grow. Yeah. I was telling Stephanie that our training for India, should we should make like five people <laughs> sit on a couch that's meant for two people and just literally sit together and they can't shower before and they can't brush their teeth and they just have to sit there and communicate because that's what it's like being in a rickshaw. I mean, you take five <laughs> people and you put them on a love seat that's meant for two and it's just, it's just bizarre. I mean, there was um, young college girls from our church I've never met in my life and you got basically close. we're yeah we're like bonding forever and so <laughs> um i actually uh pretty quickly realized that the key to survival in india is to become partners quickly with little people so i didn't hang out with stephanie a lot no no we were she takes up a rickshaws. lot of rickshaw room so hey. yeah so yeah <laughs> which they, is they're just not they're just not, i mean the average indian man is literally half the size of stephanie it's so. true how do, you, how do you think justin's doing right now he's in india he, I, he he is immune to smells Bodily functions; those things don't face him. They I picture uh, him. That's not true. How many times has he dry heaved on the debrief alone? <laughs> I had I had an Indian woman. I'm not kidding you. Roll down her window, stick her baby's head outside the window, which I thought she was showing us her kid. No, no, no. The kid puked on the side of a rickshaw. So, yeah. Thank you very much. Welcome to India. How did you get? In sick? case you guys are wondering, we do have a vision to send 100 folks long term to yes. the country of India. So this is actually yeah. just so sparking. If you love, if you love your- Jesus and hate yourself. Or you have an adventurous spirit, check out soundlesschurch.com slash India and you can find out how to go with us some more. It's just very different. It's it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, the people are cool. It's really cool. You just need to be ready. It's very colorful. Did I tell you that before you left? Uh, Yeah, that was the one thing I was disappointed about. Because I I kept saying Claude says it's colorful, but it was monsoon season. It was monsoon. So it's just gray and cloudy. Yeah, but there wasn't a lot of like uh, laundry hanging outside. So that, that was one of the big things in India, you know, the outdoor laundry mats that I was looking forward to seeing too. But yeah, Indian women dress in far more color. You realize how bland we are in America. You know, right. a lot of grays, a lot of tans, a lot of blacks. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm wearing, we're all yeah. wearing black and yeah. green. And blacks. Yeah. And you're Basically, we're dressed in blah, blah, blah. So yeah. compared to Indian people. So. <laughs> Will you go back? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If you die, can I have your pants? Yes. Oh, I got some great pants for those who are listening. Jeans. Some new Hurley dry fit pants made They're by incredible. Nike. Greatest merger in the history of the world. I was praying wow. you would get better, wow. but I wasn't Except praying that my hard. pants. Yeah, yeah there were yeah, some pretty sweet fair. pants. Yeah. Most people don't know that you and I, even though you're like six inches taller than me, I know we wear the same size pants. I have Fred Flintstone legs. <laughs> if you know who Fred Flintstone is, look him up on YouTube. So. Well, <laughs> Either that or Barney Rubble. <laughs> One of those two guys, I have their legs, man. All right, well, moving on. One of the things we love here at The Debrief, other than talking about India and poop 
Good Lord. Um, are your reviews. So we've got a couple great five-star reviews that have come in since our last episode. The first one is from Old Dogface. Yes. Which I feel like is like a little self-deprecating. I'm sure you're yeah. actually a very handsome individual. He's ready for India. And he says, this is an absolute must listen. Pastor Matt expertly breaks down each week's scripture lesson and addresses everyone's questions to help us go deeper and apply the lessons to our lives. Wow. Yeah. Just Thank really you, nice. Dogface. And our other review this week is from Daniel and Jacqueline saying that Justin is the greatest podcast host I've ever heard. Hands down. Plus one. Yes. Yes. We, we agree. We agree. I don't actually know what I'm doing here. We're trying to bring it along, but we, we look forward to it. What am I doing here? I yeah. feel like, you know, when Jay Leno comes back and when Jimmy Fallon's gone, you got to yeah. go, oh, oh, hey, Jay. Yeah. No, we're glad you're here, Claude. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I was listening to the one of my favorite pastors podcasts. I mean, like I listen to this guy every week. I'll tell you after who, who it is. And it was horrid. <laughs> like it was, well, it was, it's just, you have to have like a, a nutty collective dynamic to work together and these guys didn't have it. It was literally like pushing an elephant who's sitting uphill. I was just like, Ugh. A nutty collective dynamic. Do you feel like that's what we have here? Yes, totally. Okay. Yeah. I'll so today, it. Claude's the nut. Yeah. I'll Welcome do my best. to our nutty collective dynamic here. Yeah. It's our little tagline for the debrief, yeah. I think. His debrief nickname is Jean-Claude Van Damme. Mm. He's going to bring some Van Damage today. We're going to talk <laughs> about names later. Yes. And I think I have the worst name in the world. No. Do you know what Claude means? Have I told you this before? Oh, uh, no. It's English for lame. Are you kidding me? <laughs> it means crippled. Yeah, it means lame. You're like, your legs don't work. Aww. So not only was I that named Claude, yeah. but yeah, it means yeah. lame. I'm like, thanks, mom. Yeah. But you got Hickman working for you. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. And you're from Oklahoma, yeah. which is just kind of yeah. cool. So. Oh, yeah, definitely. All right, well, we've got some great follow-up questions this week uh, from Acts 5 and Acts 6. So the first question is from Daniel. Um, and a couple episodes ago, we talked a lot about tithing and what it means to tithe and give back to God. And his question is, my wife and I are on one income right now because of a serious work injury. When we had two incomes, we were able to give our 10%, but since the incident, we can't tithe like we did. We, we give when we can, but it's not as much as most months because we're on a really tight budget with nothing left over after bills are paid. Does the Bible say anything about tithing when in a financial bind like we are? Yeah, it absolutely doesn't say anything about that. And so here, here's what I would say is, I think people, you know, I'm assuming this guy's name's Daniel, you know, they can use that as a crutch. And, and here's, here's my concern is, is that people can adopt that mentality forever. And so they, they're, they're never tithing because there's always something. You know, I think about you know, my wife and I's bills every single month. And there's always something that breaks, something that goes wrong, something that we didn't plan for. Now, certainly this is an instance where they've gone from two incomes to one income. And eventually over time, my, my prayer for you is that you would adjust your spending so that you can continue to honor God. I just am never at the place where I feel okay paying a bill and not writing my check to the church. That's just me. Um, maybe that's because, um, you know, I stand up in front of everybody and I'm challenging people to have faith and trust God. I, I just am not okay not giving to God. Now, having said that, um, you know, we haven't had an injury in my household where either I couldn't work or Tammy couldn't work. We, we haven't gone through that. So God has blessed us. Um, you know, I would never say that Tammy and I have had a lot of money. We've just never been that way, but we have trusted God with what we've had. And so, you know, I, I just would say as quickly as you can, here's, I think here's the prayer of Christ that he wants to hear in our hearts is God, restore my income to me so that I can bless you. I think the prayer that God doesn't answer is God, give me more money so I can spend it on myself. I think the prayers that we can bring before God is God restore to me the finances so that I can be a blessing to you. And that's actually what Proverbs says. It's either Proverbs 29 or 30. I can't remember which Proverbs it is, but one of those two chapters, somebody can look that up is, Lord, let me never be so broke that I have to steal and deny your name and let me never make so much money that I become prideful and forget you. And so that's a prayer of Solomon, the richest guy on earth, 
saying, God, give me just enough so that I can be a blessing to others. And I think that's what we want to do as Christians. And that means, first of all, we have to take care of our own needs. And then we want to be in a position where we can bless others. So I hear your heart, Daniel. Love you. I get it, man. Times are tough. I'll be praying for you that you get better and you can get back on your feet and you guys can uh, get your income level back up. Appreciate your heart. There is no Sandals Church without giving. That's the bottom line. So I'm grateful that we have people like you that are that concerned, not only about your own finances, but about God's. So bless you. Awesome. Hey, uh, this is another question that came in from Megan, and it goes back to the episode where we had Tim Timberlake here. Uh, and he made a comment, and, and, and maybe it was kind of offhand or as a joke. She says, Pastor Tim said that you, Pastor Matt, was a theologian that he was not. Mm. And so she was wondering, was this a joke or maybe I missed something? Because I thought to be a lead pastor of a church, you need to be a theologian. Do you have any thoughts on, on yeah, that? Yeah, certainly you don't need to be a theologian to be a lead pastor. I think theologian, well, what Tim means by that is, I mean, first of all, I'm about 15 years older than he is. So um, I don't look it, but I am. I've been studying God's word for a lot longer. Uh, I pursued a lot more degrees. And I think Tim was just being honoring to me. Uh, I think he's a lot wiser than he thinks he is. He's one of my brothers in Christ. He's certainly somebody that I value in terms of wisdom and his opinions. But in terms of understanding the Greek and the Hebrew, you know, I've spent years studying that stuff and I, I don't know that he has. And I, I just think he was trying to be honoring to me and just saying, look, I, I'm not where you are yet. And I, I think one day he will be. And I mean, that's why I've had him at our church. And so no, most pastors are not theologians because the reality is a pastor has to do so many things. They have to care for people. They have to be a leader, you know, and then they have to do a sermon and they have to do all that stuff. You know, professors get to be theologians because they're not managing people. And so I would even say that I'm not a theologian. I would just say that I, I'm really passionate about the subject. I like to read a lot. Um, you know, I don't watch TV. I mean, I'm just very, very different. And so, um, I, you know, I, I like reading history and I like reading uh, theology and those things are attractive to me. And I don't think every pastor needs to have that gift. And um, matter of fact, you know, I, I think it's important that we spread those around. So Tim's a great guy, he's a pastor. He's an up and coming pastor and he's learning. And again, I think he was just honoring me and I'm grateful and I wanna honor him back because I think he's awesome. That's cool. It's a next, great question. Sorry, go ahead. That's okay. Our next question is actually in the same line. Manuel uh, wrote in and said, I have learned that having the right context can change or impact the meaning and significance of scripture. I'm curious to know the sources in which you discover the context. The last podcast you showed the importance of Greek and Gentile culture. How do I find more context like this for my personal study? Yeah, so what I would say is I would go and get a commentary series and there, there are many of them. Uh, the best one out right now is the NIV uh, practical commentary set. And I can actually bring that next week and read it. But that, that purpose of that commentary is to help the churchgoer understand some of the history of what's happening. Um, my degrees help me to um, understand and actually track down what the authors are saying. So simply because um, you know the author of the commentary says this, I, I, I have the skills to be able to go and figure out you know, where they got that source from. So I don't think that you need all of the tools that I need in order to do my job, but in order to grow in that, I, I would look at the NIV Contemporary Commentary and it's, it's a great book, great book series. And they may even sell it online now, which means you can get it on your phone, which is fantastic. So I, I would look at that, but any practical application commentary, I think is a great resource. You don't need to know the Greek, you don't need to know the Hebrew. Um, that, that's not important. Um, if you wanna pursue that and you feel like God's put that call on you, man, that's great. But um, you know, language, you gotta use it or you lose it. I can't tell you how many times I've had to relearn Greek because once I quit using it on a regular basis, I mean, there's some things that stick forever. And Claude, you had to study the same. 
But some stuff, man, if you don't use it, uh, it's gone. So, so I, I wouldn't worry about that. The English translations are fantastic. Uh, these guys are brilliant. I mean, we just talked about theologians. You want to talk about theologians. I mean, these guys literally sit in a, around a room at a table and argue what a dot means. And I mean, I'm not kidding you. And, 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 and they bring volumes as to why this little dot changes the whole meaning of the word. And so um, I don't want to know that much about Hebrew. No, thank no. you very much. So, uh, but yeah, those are my thoughts. Okay, well, thank you guys so much for sending in your questions. If you have questions from this week's chapter or maybe some of the other chapters we've gone over here on The Debrief, you can send those in at sandalschurch.com slash The Debrief, or you can drop those on our Facebook page. Just look for The Debrief Podcast. So we're going to jump on into Acts 9, uh, starting with verses 1 through 2. Do you want to read those, Claude? Yeah, I'll read these, and then we'll kind of go back and talk about Saul. Uh, Verse 1 and 2 says, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest, he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. Uh, He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. You know, so this weekend we looked at, you know, we introduced Saul, who later changed his name to Paul, one of the most influential Mm -hmm. Christians really in history. Uh, Even critics of Christianity sometimes try to talk about Jesus's uh, Christianity versus Paul's sure. Christianity, yeah. almost as if Jesus taught, you know, everything's love and Paul created this thing. But even in that criticism, they uh, tell us how important Saul or Paul uh, becomes in, in what we believe today. So can you, you know, what's important for us to know about just the background of this person, Saul, and, and maybe even why God would cho- chose to use him as an instrument? Yeah, absolutely. Well, what I would say is there, to me, there is no Christianity apart from Paul. I mean, so to divide the apostle Paul from Jesus, I think is, is a, an incredible mistake. And, and one of the reasons why everybody loves the teachings of Jesus is because so much of his criticism was related towards religious Jews. But as Christianity begins to leave the confines of Jerusalem and make its way into Samaria and into Gentiles, it has to deal with issues like homosexuality, issues like sensuality, issues like greed, issues like just a complete abandonment of God. And so the apostle Paul has to start dealing with serious social issues. And that's why people don't like Paul because he comes at it with a sledgehammer and he's like, look, we can talk about love all day long, but let me tell you what God's love looks like. And so, you know, Paul is a very, very serious guy, obviously. He takes God very seriously. I mean, at this point he doesn't have Jesus in his heart. So he's kind of a jerk running around, killing people, um, hunting them down. I mean, um, you know, it's interesting here that, you know, he has legal uh, paperwork that says he is able to do this. I mean, yeah, he has gotten permission from you know the highest authorities within Judaism and within uh, Romans. I mean, the Romans are participating in this hunting, so to speak, that's taking place. And and Israel and Rome have this really weird relationship. And a lot of people don't realize this, but the reason that Rome is even in Israel is because the Jews asked them to come. A lot of people don't understand that. But there was a, a revolt called the Maccabean Revolt that occurred about 150 years before the um, uh, birth of Christ. And Judas Maccabeus was this great Jewish general that was fighting not the Romans, but the Greeks. And the Greeks through Alexander the Great came in and they didn't care about Jewish culture. The Greeks liked the party. You know, the Greeks liked to, you know, have a sporting event where all the dudes are naked and afterwards we have a big orgy. I mean, they were wild. And that didn't sit well with conservative Jewish people, right? Who believe in sex is between one man and one woman in the context of the home where Greeks felt like sex was between everybody and we just party. And so these cultures clashed and the Greeks were offended. Think about this. They were offended with how shrewd 
uh, the sexual shrewdness of the Jewish people. And so they outlawed things like circumcision. They outlawed temple worship. They outlawed the Sabbath. They made Jews uh, forego circumcision and wrestle in the gymnasiums, which was basically a lot of times homosexual grooming. And it was this ugly time in Jewish history. And so the Jews reached out to the Romans to help get the Greeks off their backs. And so they've invited this whole thing in. And so it's just interesting that, you know, Rome gives the Jews a lot of leeway. So they're able to, you know, uh, crucify Jesus. There's this whole interaction and this whole dance that occurs politically between Jews and the Romans. And it's just interesting. A lot of people don't realize that Rome is involved in this because the Jews asked them to be. Now, ultimately, obviously, Rome becomes the dominant military threat in the world and they conquer everything. But they still, up until um, AD 70, Romans have a great respect for the Jewish faith. So Jews are allowed to worship and, and worship the one true God all throughout the Roman Empire. Oftentimes, they're given special exemptions. They don't have to pay tribute to Caesar in a specific way. And so Roman, the Romans, Romans are very lenient towards Jews up until AD 70 when they say we've had enough and they decide to kill them all everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, so I, I know that was a long tangent, but um, it's just interesting to note here that the apostle Paul is still working as Saul within the confines of this relationship, remember that crucified Christ. So they worked together to kill a common threat who was Jesus, even though Pilate said he was innocent. And you know, we're talking about really ancient problems. We're talking about ancient, you know, hunting down of Christians. Right. Uh, but obviously we live in a world where there are still real threats uh, in the world. There's ISIS, there, there's what, you know, we call radical Islam. Uh, we're dealing with this in India, you know, with targeting and, and kicking Christian workers out of India. Uh, what, what should our response be just in the middle of what's going on even right now uh, compared to what was going on during that time? Well, I think our first response is, is to pray. You know, Jesus says um, that I was naked and you did not clothe me, that I was hungry and you did not feed me, and I was in prison and you did not visit me. And a lot of Christians say, oh, we got to have a prison ministry, and they don't understand what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about visiting prisoners. He's talking about the persecuted church, those who are imprisoned for their faith in Jesus. And so as Christians, we have to remember those around the world who right now are being persecuted and arrested. You know, I was just in India worshiping last week and I I met with a pastor there and he told me they are marked every single week. Uh, The local authorities know who they are, they're harassed. They have to seek government protection on a regular basis because there's this rise of militant Hinduism. We don't think about Hinduism in the militant sense, but you know, in India, um, there's this rise of this political, all-encompassing idea that to be Indian, you must be a Hindu. And so if you are a Christian or Muslim, you're out. And so there's this radicalization of Hinduism, which in large part is response to the radicalization of Islam. And so they're countering that. Uh, because they feel that pressure. But unfortunately, as they are rejecting uh, Islam in, in India, what they're also doing is turning on those who are Christians and kicking out missionaries, shutting down Christian schools. Even Compassion right now is having a hard time. Think about Compassion, a multi-million, I think it's a $750 million nonprofit corporation a year. They're saying, hey, we're not able to get our money to your kids because the government is not allowing us to do this in Jesus' name. So that's how militant they are. They would rather their kids starve than hear about Jesus. It's, and, and that's crazy. It's like 13% of Compassion International kids are in that area and the faucet has just been turned off. It's like yeah. 140,000 kids. I, I can't remember the exact number, but it's, an, it's crazy. Um, 
and even when it hurts their own country, you know. Yeah. But the, but I, I was reading, preparing for this week, and just a, an old you know sermon by somebody else that said this would basically be like Saddam Hussein, you know, converting to Christianity, and all of a sudden now trying to win people to Jesus, you know, and things like that. Yeah, so, or Osama bin Laden or any other terrorist, you yeah. know, who who is hell bent not on killing the West, right? Which is what right. radical Islam is really about. It's about destroying the West, the great Satan. But all of a sudden, now becoming a convert to capitalism and preaching, you know, the health and wealth gospel of America. I mean, it, it would just be so bizarre. And you can imagine that, you know, those fellow terrorists would want to kill that person rather quickly. And so, yeah. you know, who at one time were Paul's greatest comrades, ultimately become his hunters, and now they're after him. Have you seen the new Jason Bourne movie? No, I have not. Oh, it lives up to the other. That's all I got to say. It lives up to the other movies. Yeah, and, I don't watch movies. I spend all my time praying for people's souls like this <laughs> to have time for movies. Yeah. And we, then preparing for wonderful things like this you know, to make us I all just, feel. I kept getting this picture, you know, because the one guy you don't want to turn it against you is, is your own guy, Jason yeah. Bourne. He knows all your tricks. Yeah, He's three steps ahead of you. And, and man, that I, I just got to thank for the Jewish, you know, uh, Hellenistic guys, you know, to lose Saul right. was a big deal. Yeah, their champion just turned. So, All right, so in verses three through four, it says, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission to go kill Christians, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So we learn later that this is Jesus. Why does Jesus make it a point that Jesus is or that Saul is persecuting him when really Saul's going after his followers? Right, and so this is, I mean, what's happened, you know, we're talking about theologians. Luke is dropping some theology here that there is an intimate connection between the church and Jesus that we do not understand. You know, so like in Ephesians chapter five, the apostle Paul writes a letter about marriage. And so we always use that. The wife must respect and submit to her husband and the husband must love his wife uh, as Christ loved the church. And so we always look at that just in the context of marriage uh, and the prayer in marriage that the two should become one flesh. But what Paul ultimately is talking about in Ephesians five is not marriage. It's about the connection between the church and Jesus. And so for Paul, there's a oneness with Christ and the church, the church is the body of Christ. And so to sin against the church is to sin against Jesus. And so what Saul is understanding here is that he is not just persecuting people, but he's actually persecuting God himself. It's interesting here. So um, in the original language, the name for Saul here is in the Aramaic. So even though the early manuscripts would have been in Greek. And so Jesus is saying, you think you're Jewish? And so the spelling is in the Aramaic spelling of Saul, Saul, Saul. He says it twice. Oh, I know your name and I know it in Hebrew, buddy. And he calls him on it. And so um, you are not nearly as zealous for God as you think you are because you're actually fighting against me. And what's amazing here is, you know, Saul doesn't have any idea who he is. Mm -hmm. who, who are you, Lord? You know, and, and the Greek word uh, for Lord is kurios. And we don't know, did he mean sir? Or does he mean Lord in the title of God? Because it can also mean God. Um, you know, what does it mean here? And so he's crying out and he's saying, who are you? And, and, and that's what's so amazing here is you can be totally religious, 100% religious and still completely divorced from God. And that's why I tell people all the time, it doesn't matter if you call yourself Catholic or Lutheran or Baptist, or even if, you, if you, you know, you're a Sandalite or you grew up in Calvary Chapel, do you know Jesus? Mm -hmm. Because the religious titles and the religious pedigree and heritage, oftentimes those are the people who are farthest from God. And so here's this guy who spent all of his life studying to know God and he doesn't know him at all. I mean, God is speaking to him and he doesn't know who it is. Who are you? 
Well, and that even is kind of crazy to think about too. A lot of like, I was thinking about this earlier that if Saul wasn't going after killing Christians, I think a lot of Christians would probably think, oh, so Saul's a good guy. Like he's yeah, religious, absolutely. he's following the law. Like what's what's so bad about him? And so that's just really interesting, like what you're saying there. Yeah, no, he's a super religious person, but he's incredibly lost. And that's why, again, he becomes the champion of we're saved by grace through faith. And this is not of ourselves. So all of his religious ambition, all of his religious di- desire, all of his religious pursuits made him just as much of a son of hell as the worst sinner on earth, which is why Paul says that he is the worst of all sinners. Because he, he actually, his sin was he actually thought he could earn God's favor through behavior and zealous religious following and, and being passionate about doing everything absolutely right. And ultimately, what did that drive him to do? Kill people. I mean, that's, that's the pursuit of religion without the spirit of God in your heart is ultimately, it makes you even worse than you were when you started. And so that's what's so sad about so much of religion in the world today is, you know, what we believe makes us religious actually makes us worse. And so what we need to do is a truly devout person to God will understand that regardless of their endeavors and their pursuits, the gap between what they need to be and what they are is insurmountable. And that's why we need Christ. Well, Saul picks himself up off the ground, right. <laughs> which is what I probably would have done. Uh, he, but when he opens his eyes, he was blind. So his companions, they lead him by hand to Damascus. He remains there, says blind for three days and did not eat, did not drink. You know, obviously this is a really sobering three days and I I would hate to lose my sight. I I would lose a lot of senses. I think losing your sight would be horrible, you know? Uh, It seems like God, first of all, it seems like God was totally fine, you know, breaking into his life on the Damascus road, totally fine, striking him blind uh, for three days. And, And so, you know, what do you what do you say when you know when we encounter things that we feel like man these are huge trials when maybe God's trying to use them uh, obviously to get Saul's attention in a real unique way uh, how do we how do we understand maybe things that happen to us where God's trying to get our attention or it's just part of being in a fallen world uh, full of sickness and things like that yeah well I would say that you know we never know for certain whether or not whether or not it's just suffering. Um, I was talking with a, a young man in church on Sunday who came up to me. He's a leader, loves Jesus, and his sister has leukemia. And he said, I don't understand. Why did God do this to my sister? And at times like that, the answer is we, we don't know. I, I don't know. You know, we don't know. Is this an Ananias and Sapphira moment where you've sinned against God and God is punishing you? Or is this just the general punishment for being born a sinner in a culture of sin that experiences sin and death and disease on a daily basis? And so what I would say is we don't know until we do know. So here, why do we know that this isn't just general sin? Because Jesus mm-hmm. spoke. Jesus spoke and Jesus has done this and he is going to humble the most arrogant man on earth. And I, I've been blind for, I don't know, about 10 minutes. I had LASIK surgery and they cut your cornea off the front of your eye and it creates a flap. And after they do this, they have to move you from one machine where they cut the cornea to another machine where they laser the inside of your eye. And so there's a period of time where you're blind and they tell you, you're going to become blind. And then this nice woman, this nurse told me, I'm going to lead you. And literally she had to pick me up off the table and lead me from one table where they cut my cornea to the another table where they lasered my eyes and my vision would be restored. And it was a humbling, frightening experience. And so I can only imagine, here's this guy who thinks that he has an eye for God and God takes his sight. He thinks he can see, and the reality is he's blind. And what I love about this is God, like you said, is okay letting him sit in this. You know, we think 
that God's will is always to take away our suffering when oftentimes it's only the suffering that will produce the change in our lives. And so when we're in small group, when we're in our prayer time, we're asking God to take away the very thing we need in our life to produce the results in our life we need the most. And, you know, that's what's so sad. And, you know, I think about Daniel, the opening question about tithing, you know, I just have to wonder, is this God's way of trying to get him to trust him when you don't have the money? Hmm. I don't know. It might be. And so maybe the job that he needs and prays for doesn't occur until he learns to trust God and give in that moment. I don't know. So we have to figure it out and we have to pray through it. That's why we need community. That's why we need wisdom. That's why we need to know God so that we can try to figure out, God, what are you doing? And God lets him sit in this for three days. And you know, years ago when I was in my early 30s, they, they told me that I, I might have throat cancer and I had to have surgery. And I just remember, God, why would you call me to preach and take away my voice? And I heard God speak to me. It's one of the few times in my life God actually spoke. And he said, I don't care about your career. I care about your character. And that was a humbling experience for me. And I walked away from that experience realizing I'm just, I, I'm just a tool in God's hand. And if he doesn't use me, he can use somebody else. I'm not nearly as central to the plan of God as I thought I was. And Paul here is finding out, not only are you not central to the plan of God, you're actually on the wrong side of God and, and he's gonna deal with you. And again, I would just say this to Christians over and over again, fear the Lord, fear the Lord, take God seriously, take God seriously. God loves you. God wants the best for you. That is not a problem in Christianity today. Our problem is we don't fear God and we don't take him seriously. And, um, and we're not nearly frightened enough. Hmm. We lack wisdom when it comes to dealing with God because we, we don't realize that you know he will deal with us. Judgment starts with the house of God. And so he is dealing with Saul and he's gonna say, I'm gonna teach this dude what it means to suffer from me. Like this is not over. Mm-hmm in three days. His suffering is not over. It, I mean, he is about ready to be baptized into suffering for God because he tortured the church, man, mm-hmm. slaughtered its leaders, killed its best preacher. I mean, he's responsible for the death of the church's greatest preacher, Stephen. And we never get to hear Stephen preach another message because of guys like Saul, mm-hmm. who in the name of God committed great sin. So... So in verses 10 through 12, we're kind of moving on with what's happening to Saul right now. And it says, now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision calling Ananias, go over to straight street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. But Lord explained to Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. I feel like Ananias' questions here are pretty fair. This is a obviously a unique situation in that God's talking to him, but how do we know how to balance faith and wisdom like you were talking about? Absolutely. And so what I love here is Ananias is completely free to bring this to the Lord and say, hey God, this guy's scary. Mm -hmm. And I think that we need to be aware as Christians, you know, Christians say stupid things all the time. I remember one time I saw a guy riding his motorcycle without a helmet. He said, oh, Jesus will take care of me. (laughs) It's like, look, man, you're an idiot. You know, he's going to take care of you probably with a head injury. So um, we need to exercise great wisdom, great restraint. The laws of the world apply to us just like everybody else. You know, when Jesus was pierced in the heart, he bled. When you and I are pierced in the heart, we're, we'll bleed. If we get shot, you know, we're gonna bleed. If we crash in a plane, we'll probably die. So we have to use great wisdom and ultimately ask yourself, is this where God wants you to be? And if it is, you have to endure the suffering. But if it's not, are you just being stupid? Is there a better way 
to share the gospel and live to share it another day. I, you know, that we shouldn't have such a hatred for life. You know, part of being a Christian is valuing life, caring about our life. That's why we don't believe in suicide. We value our life regardless of the suffering that we're going through. And so we try to hang in there as best we can and ultimately let God deal with when, when it's time for us to die. So we need to have great um, wisdom in this area. Like when we were in India last week, you know, all the girls were with us, never be alone never be by yourself when we would go out to a restaurant mm -hmm. and one of the girls would need to go to the restroom. You know, we're in these alleyways and I'm like, okay, well, you have to take a guy with you, you know, which is embarrassing because, you know, girls don't want guys falling in the bathroom when they got to go number two. Um, but we don't want a girl kidnapped. We don't want somebody disappeared. So you have to exercise wisdom and you have to work together. And you can't just say, oh, well, God will protect me. Yeah, he's mm -hmm. protecting you by me telling you we need to go in a group, we need to go in a team. You know, and you and I have talked about this. It, when we start to open our life up to ministry to other people, even with wisdom, even with all, all of that, um, sometimes people sin against you. You sure. know, when you open your life up, when you open your home up, uh, when you, you know, any kind of ministry, you would, you know, you'd think, Lord, I'm doing ministry, at least protect me from getting scarred and, you know, things for that. And that's this weekend, we kind of talked about just the risk of opening your life up to be an Ananias or to be a Barnabas. And how is that? You know, for you, have you experienced that? And have you kept going even when people sin against you in ministry? Yeah, it's really, really hard, man. Um, you know, I think the most painful wounds um, I've received in my back are, are, are people that I led in my heart. And, and that's just the reality. And so people are people. And most people, I believe, are gonna love and appreciate you for what you do. Occasionally, there are people that are so broken that, um, you know, you have to remember hurt people hurt people and they don't mean to or they do mean to, but ultimately you just have to give it to the Lord. And I've had people take money from me. I've had people, you know, do all kinds of things to my wife and I, but the bottom line is we've been blessed. We've been immensely blessed by people that have been good to us, that love us, that love my kids. And I never would have been exposed to that level of love if we hadn't exposed ourselves to that level of risk. And so, you know, you can live your Christian life in a foxhole and maybe you won't ever get hurt, but you also won't experience love. And so I think that there are two sides to it. And if Ananias, doesn't open his heart to the possibility that God could be in fact changing Saul's life, man. Think about it, you and I aren't here today. I mean, the whole human race, right, in this moment is hanging in the balance of will and Ananias risk his personal safety for our future? And the truth is thousands of thousands of nameless, faceless Christians have been confronted with these same issues and they've chosen to press ahead. Some of them have lost their lives, some of them have died, but because of that, the gospel lives on and people are saved forever. And so we need to be grateful for these people who have given up everything. You know, Jesus Christ died for your sins, but many, many people have died so that you could hear about Jesus dying for your sins. And so we need to be as grateful to them, um, you know, as almost as we are to Christ and because it is his love that ultimately compels them to do that. So uh, in... Um, one of Paul's letters, I can't remember what, which one it is right now, but he says, I pray that God would keep me free from unreasonable men. And um, the Greek word there, unreasonable, means without, without reason, without ration. And so what we want to be freed from is psychos. That's what Paul's saying. <laughs> keep, me, keep me free from psychotic people. Why? Because Can I get that on a printable at our house? Yeah. <laughs> you can't reason with psychotics. You can't. Mm -hmm. And so Paul is just saying some of these people, you know, you can't reach them. You need to pray to avoid them. And so at this time, people think Paul's a psychotic mm -hmm. um, and he probably is. God had to deal greatly with him, but ultimately his life was changed 
because he becomes born again. Yeah. So we're about to see that happen here. So it says, Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. So I have a question. Does Saul get the Holy Spirit because of Ananias praying over him, or is he actually in that moment choosing to give his life to Christ? Yeah, so you know Saul's conversion's a little different than what most people experience because most people do oh. not experience God speaking from heaven. Hey, hey, um, and so his coming to faith really isn't a coming to faith at all. It's a coming to reality, and and that's one of the things that makes Paul an apostle. He is a witness to the resurrected Jesus. He doesn't believe in Jesus by faith. He knows about Jesus. He knows because God spoke to him in a powerful way. So. Paul's conversion experience is a little different probably than any other human being in history. Although, you know, this is a great example of people can come to faith in Christ apart from the church. You know, you know, ultimately Ananias is a part of that and blessing and they bring him into the church. But the reality is Jesus saves this guy all on his own. Mm-hmm. Um, which again, makes sense when Paul says we are saved by grace through faith and this is not of ourselves. Paul is not, you know, at a Billy Graham concert listening to the sermon about how to be born again, right? He is on his way on the road with papers in hand to kill Christians. And and Jesus says, what the heck are you doing? So his conversion experience really um, is not about his faith, but it's about Jesus's choice. And so he's gonna talk about that over and over again, that he has been chosen by God. That is his argument in Galatians. I did not choose God, God chose me. So he is saved literally by grace and grace alone. And um, does not choose Jesus, but Jesus chooses him to be an instrument of suffering <laughs> Yay. for the sake of the gospel. Yeah, so I think we're all blessed that we get to come by faith because <laughs> now Paul comes by sight. Is oh. that the yeah. sight, is, is this why he has the title apostle along with the others? Is yeah. it because he saw Jesus personally, met Jesus personally? What does that have to do with that title apostle? Yeah, because he, he is an authority on the risen Jesus because he has spoken with him. And then at some point in 1 Corinthians, he's caught up into heaven again and gets visions. And he actually says, I don't know whether I was there in person or there in a vision. I mean, it was that confusing to him but he saw things. He actually says he saw some things he can't tell us. And just so he doesn't get prideful, he gets a demon assigned to him for the rest of his life as a thorn in his flesh. So he's got that going for him. So he's, this guy, you know, um, I mean, there's a reason, there's a reason that for 2000 years, you know, all of Christianity has been Pauline Christianity. Mm. Uh, Even Peter in second Peter says, listen to what Paul says. I know his instructions are difficult, Mm -hmm. but listen to what he says. because Paul is the church's great theologian. Uh, I got a couple of questions. First one, uh, what, what's with the scales yeah. falling from his yeah, eyes? What were those? Yeah, These we things. have no idea. Anybody who tells you they know what they are, we have no idea. I had great hopes for this episode because I was, I was hoping to figure out what that finally was. Do you think Judas like swept those up and made some earrings out of them? Yeah, no. <laughs> that's, that's so gross. <laughs> yeah. The first time ever, Stephanie and I are in agreement. That's gross. <laughs> Yeah. Even after coming no. back from India. Yeah, awesome souvenir. I, I wish I could come up with something What do you do with those? You, you guys, get, you know. I'm um, going to just sweep those up. Nobody knows what they are. Uh, fine. Yeah. Okay. So uh, something, okay, here's what we know. It was something that looked like scales. <laughs> that, that's literally what the text says. So it doesn't give us any more details. We don't know what it was. It was something 
Hmm. Right? This is the doctor, Luke, writing right. <laughs> something that looked like scales. So uh, I just can, I'm going to guess it's gross. And Paul seems to have an issue with his eyes for the rest of his life because he oh, yeah, talks he in another letter about an infection. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, one of the things I was thinking about that, that I've heard you know you talk about mm-hmm. is uh, sharing the gospel with people who are who just seem resistant to God, resistant to faith, and and I you know I get it. Uh, there are times that that's a waste of, of time to keep sharing with the same person over and over who seems uh, to be adamant against faith, adamant against God. Right. Um, now, there's a lot of things that are unique about. Paul, but you know what? What does this tell us about um, holding out hope for people, even people who seem to be the most resistant to to God in their life? Yeah. So you know, I, I, ultimately, we don't want to run away and hide. I, I think that people, first of all, are free to have questions. They're free to not understand. As a church, you know, we're not a cult. We're not afraid of good questions. We're not afraid of people wrestling, questioning, wondering. We're not even afraid of doubting. We welcome all of those things. But is the person? genuinely, genuinely interested in being saved and changing their lives. And that's what we need to pray about because if the person doesn't want to be saved, then there's nothing you can do. Um, C.S. Lewis gives this great example. Um, he writes a great book called, about the great divorce. And, mm-hmm. and so the, the purpose of the book, The Great Divorce, which is a fantastic book, is, is people always assume that people in hell want out. Mm-hmm. And the whole book about the great divorce is, is that people in hell don't want out, that the gates are locked from the inside, that they do not want to give their lives to Christ. When you look at the book of Revelation, the last judgments, after every judgment, it's interesting, John says, and the people neither repented of their sins nor confessed in God. So the the whole earth is being tortured and set on fire and there's dragons and, right? I mean, you, you would think at that moment, you know, when an angel flies over the earth and says, woe unto thee, for the wrath of God has come, that people would repent. And they shake their fists. But at it. Jesus yeah. tells us this in um, Matthew 11. It is a fantastic passage that a lot of people don't realize. But Matthew 11, John the Baptist starts to doubt. He's not sure. Jesus, are you the one? Or should we look for someone else? And listen to what Jesus says. He says, but what should I, shall I compare this generation He said, it's like children sitting at the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. He says, for John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. And the son of man came eating and drinking and they said, look at him, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's saying, it doesn't matter how the gospel comes. John came preaching repentance and you guys said, he's whack. I've come preaching love and I'm whack. He says, you're like children. So children in those days, there's two types of parties in the ancient world, weddings and funerals. Those are the two parties, right? There's the only two reasons to celebrate or mourn. And for children, they don't understand the difference because both involve public action and outcry. Uh, So at a funeral, women sing a dirge, which is mourning, but they sing and they wail. And then at weddings, there's dancing. And Jesus said, you are like children. I came to you and I played a flute for you, but you would not dance. So I brought good news and you rejected me. And I also brought the gospel of a dirge. I told you that there's impending death and you didn't wanna participate that. Why, what is Jesus saying? Because ultimately the heart of repentance is, I wanna dance and sing to my own tune. I don't want to play your game. I don't want to sing your song. That is the problem of the human heart is, 
human hearts, the bottom line, we don't want God telling us what to do. That's why we say things like, how on earth could God create homosexuals and then not, how, how, how could, because he's God and we're not. How could God ask me to do that? How could God ask me to give up my life? How could God ask me to give up my money? It's because we wanna live our life to our own tune. Hmm. And Jesus says, it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter whether I invite you with love or if I warn you of impending death, you're gonna reject both. Why? Because your heart is hardened. So faith is not just the lack of something, it's the presence of something. So faith isn't just the lack of belief, but it's the presence of the hardness of heart. And so what we need to pray for in people that just, just we need to pray for their hearts, that their heart would change because until their heart is softened, the gospel will bounce off like a bullet off Superman. It's just not going to penetrate. And there are just some people that aren't gonna get it. And Jesus says, it will be better for, for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than you guys. Oh, Corazon, right? Why? Because he did all those miracles. He did all these miracles. He played his flute and he sang his dirge and they rejected him. And Jesus says, there's something wrong with you. There's something terribly wrong with you. And so we just have to understand that in the lives of people, that there is a spiritual battle that's taking place. And so again, it's not just the lack of faith, but it's the presence of something else. And so we need to speak to that. And some people, again, are going to reject God all the way. And in hell, they're still gonna be mad. Think, think about in Luke, we talked about the rich man and Lazarus, right? The rich man doesn't wanna leave hell. He's pissed off that God won't send him the, the poor man Lazarus to take care mm -hmm. of his needs. He's not asking to be delivered from hell. He's asking for his servant. What he wants is to continually to be served. He's not repentant wow. in any way. I mean, think about it. It's crazy. And he's just like, this, is, this doesn't make sense because I, it's, for the rich man, it's still all about him. It's his dirge. It's his dance. It's his song. And I don't understand why Lazarus gets to be ministered to. Why? Because it's all about me, even in hell, hmm. even in hell. And, um, and then ultimately he has a, you know, a moment where he's like, well, at least warn my brothers. And Jesus says, they won't believe even if someone comes back from the dead. So I know that was a whole like theological like, no, that was way out there, but just understand guys, what we're battling against is the human heart, which is the Bible says utterly wicked beyond all that we understand. Yeah. And you know, the gospel has two arrows. One arrow is you're way more sinful than you will ever know. And right, that's the dirge. <laughs> that's that's the, the brutality of Jesus. It's difficult, it's pessimistic. There's no hope for you. Think about that, right? The world says, oh, people are basically good. The Bible says, nope. But the other side is the dance. You have no idea how much you're loved. Hmm. That's the gospel. You have no idea how bad you are and you have no idea how much you're loved. You're both valuable and worthless at the same time. It, 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 it's, it's the beauty. And so he preaches both, but Jesus says they rejected both. They don't want the good news and they certainly don't want the bad news. And, you know, wickedness in Paul, wickedness shows up in this really interesting mix of two types of people, the, the murderer and the incredibly righteous, Christ, you know, right. follower of God, not Christian, an incredibly righteous follower of God. Now, Paul later is gonna say this about himself. And you quoted this verse earlier. It's 1 Timothy 1, 15, 16. It says, I am the chief of sinners. 
but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience for an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life, uh, us today. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, like I said, Paul is this interesting, you know, mix of people that we find even today, the, the person who's the feels like, man, I'm really far from God because of my sin. But also we pe- see people who that wickedness shows up as self-righteousness mm-hmm. or, or being hyper-religious. And, uh, you know, my, I, I didn't, you know, a lot of people always say this to you too. I've never murdered anyone, yeah. uh, but I grew up thinking I was a good person. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people have been in church their whole life thinking they're a good person and uh, both are hard to reach. What, what's been your experience about which of those two people end up being farther from God on their journey, the, the sinner or the self-righteous? Oh, the self-righteous every time. Absolutely, and that's Saul. Saul is self-righteous, and that's why it literally takes a hit over the head from heaven to save him. And, um, and, and, and let me just you know, say that is, you know, I, have a, I have a good friend of mine who's gay, and um, he, he tells me, man, he says, it was way harder for him to reject his Judaism than it was his, homo- his homosexual practice hmm. because he could understand that his homosexuality would, would, would be sin. He could never embrace his self-righteousness, his Judaism. He could never let go of that because, I mean, we, we don't understand how, how deceitful and sinful this statement is. Well, I'm a good person. And why, why do people want a religion? Why is there a religion so attractive that says, well, I'm gonna do my best. And I'll tell you why. Because they're in the driver's seat. Mm -hmm. They're still in control. They get credit. God's impressed with them. But what happens in a religion where it's just grace? You've You've earned nothing. I'll tell you what's so frightening about that religion is the person who's saved by grace now knows they owe God everything. And that's that's a terrifying place to be in negotiations. Hmm. But the other way, right? When I'm in the driver's seat, and I'm, and that's why work salvation is so appealing. Do your best and let God take care of the rest. Sounds so great because you're still Lord. But when you come into grace, and it's all about God's grace, and it's all about His love, and it's all about everything He did, now you're you're not in a position to negotiate. You're only in a position to surrender. And now God can ask anything of you versus a religion where he owes you because you're so much better than everybody else. So in verses 22 through 25, it says, Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. After a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him. You know, you had a good question about this, that they couldn't refute, but you know, what's going on there? I liked your question. Oh yeah, well, I was just like looking at that. The Jews can't disagree that Jesus is the Messiah, but then they still want to kill him. Right. What's going on here? Again, salvation is not just the lack of faith. It's the presence of something else. And in their case, it's self-righteous zeal, which has actually manifested itself in hatred. I mean, they're, they're so far from God, they have no idea. Their self-righteousness has led them literally so far away from God, which is why, right? Remember, you know, the only time in the Bible Jesus gets angry is when he comes to the temple, the place where people to draw to God and, and their, their zeal for the Lord had completely contaminated the whole place. And he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer and you have made it a den of thieves. So in their self-righteousness, they were actually corrupt and they, they didn't see it or they, or, they, or they refused to see it. 
Saul, obviously, man, he knows the Old Testament. He knows um, the the prophecies. Do you think he was putting any of those things together already as he's making these proofs? It sounds like he has a pretty good case for Jesus being the Son of God all of a sudden. Where do you think that was coming from? Yeah, I don't, we don't know. So, um, you know, Galatians chapter 1 through 24 is the best place to kind of see Paul's testimony from his own words. And so his testimony is found three times in the book of Acts and then one time in Galatians chapter one, verses one through 24. And so we, we don't know exactly the timeline here. So it seems from the reading in the book of Acts that this is like instantaneously, but it's probably over a period of time. Mm-hmm. So we know from uh, 1 Corinthians that the apostle Paul is caught up into heaven at some point and receives revelations upon revelations. So this guy is getting his theology straight from Jesus. And so that's one of the things that he tells us in Galatians. He said, I, I, I didn't get my teaching from the other apostles. You know, he wasn't a disciple of Jesus. He wasn't a part of the ministry for three years. You know, he, he didn't travel with them. He is getting his information directly downloaded from Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. So this guy um, is going to seminary in a way that no one has ever been to seminary. I mean, it's just incredible. And so we don't know exactly how quickly, quickly this process was, but it was fairly early on in, in his life because we know from the text in Acts 9 that Christians are still a little leery. So he's now the greatest preacher and the greatest argumer for Jesus, but Christians are still like, I don't know, because this guy's a little scary. And he may have still have been a little scary because his personality needs to mellow out a little bit uh, <laughs> as he comes to faith in Christ. So That's true. Yeah, it actually says in the next verses that when Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. They didn't believe that he had truly become a believer. So what I was even wondering is, it kind of makes sense that they wouldn't necessarily believe that. They're kind of hesitant. How do we know if we can trust if someone's actually had a real conversion has actually become a believer. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, I think the words of Jesus, you will know them by their fruit. So the evidence of their life. So we talked about this a couple of weeks ago in the debrief that one of the greatest untalked about evidences of, of a born again Christian is their personality, their disposition. There's a change in who they are as a person. There's a distinct change. Why? Because you had a hard heart and now your heart has been softened and the Holy Spirit is present in your life. You're not going to be perfect but you are going to be different, noticeably different. So Paul says in Galatians, we're going back to Galatians 5, 22 through 23, that the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, uh, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So all of those are verbs describing a, a person everybody wants to be like. Now, you can be those ways and not be a follower of Christ, but you can't not be those ways and be a follower of Christ, mm-hmm. right? So if those things are missing from you, the gospel's missing from you. But just because they're in somebody, because a Buddhist can be loving, kind, joyful. You know, The difference for the Christian is not that we're better than everybody else. The difference is why we're trying to be better. We're not trying to be better to impress God. We're, we're trying to be better because God has impressed himself upon us. And so the change is coming from him to us. Um, and, and that's just so, so important. So. I think that you got to look at the fruit. You have to look at the fruit. And that is so important because, you know, young people all the time, especially want to get a tattoo of Jesus on their arm. And some girl's like, oh, he's a Christian because he has a cross on his forearm. Okay, that means nothing. You know, Manchester yeah, United has a cross on their logo. I'm pretty sure it's not for Jesus. So that's a soccer team. Uh, you mentioned, you know, the believers are still kind of leery of him. And, um, you know, this, this, the spirit of this, I feel like still... Is true uh, in places today 
Uh, I think this is one of the things our church does a great job at, and you've created an incredible culture of grace where uh, we do have a lot of new believers, a lot of seeking non-Christians who are, you know, they like Jesus, maybe they're curious about the church or they've been hurt by the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, why, why do you think that is that sometimes the church doesn't feel like a safe place for people with certain sins and certain pasts? Uh, and how, how, uh, what are the intentional things that you feel like you've done at Sandals to help it create a culture where it's okay for those people to feel safe and welcomed? Yeah, I think it's a battle. I don't know that I've created the culture. I think we're trying to create the culture. I think we're better at it than many churches, um, but we still have a lot of work to, to do. And that's because no matter who you are as a Christian, you're always gonna battle having a self-centered life versus a God-centered life. And so a church that's completely God-centered is going to understand that, look, people are gonna come in as disasters and we need to welcome them as quickly as we can to the gospel and as quickly as we can to to what it means to live a life for Christ. And so I just think it's difficult to balance. You know, you wanna be clear about what sin is. You don't wanna be soft about sin, but you gotta be soft on people. And I think that's a real challenge in the church is how do you exercise moral and spiritual judgment without becoming judgy? You have to have both. And um, I think at Sandals, we get that. I think people in our church tend to maybe be a little too soft on, on, on issues of sin, but I would rather err on that side than on being too harsh. And, you know, I was talking with a gal today at the gym. Um, she, she goes to Sandals, she listens to the debrief, and she told me that she didn't want to go to church because she said, I felt like crap. She said she would mm-hmm. come and she just said, I just feel like crap when I come. And so eventually a friend of hers invited her to Sandals and she found a place where she could change her life, where she could get her life right with Christ. And now she has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And she was just talking about how the church for her was a place of exclusion. And she just felt like the spotlight was on her. Whereas That's how I Sandals, feel when I go to the gym. <laughs> <laughs> the spotlight is on you, quit eating yeah. Doritos. So, um, and, and that's what we have to do is, and, and I just remember when I'm preaching, I'm talking to two audiences, followers of Christ and people who are curious. And, and, and there's always two groups. Every sermon has to deal with the fact that not everybody's in the same place. And I think a lot of Christians, a lot of pastors fail, fail that. So then it says that Saul stayed with the apostles and went around all of Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He debated some of the Greek speaking Jews, but they tried to murder him. So when the <laughs> believers heard about this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus, his hometown. The church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria and became stronger as the believers lived in the fear of the Lord. And with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it also grew in numbers. So did the apostles send Paul away to help spread the gospel and kind of send him off? Or were they really just trying to protect themselves in the church because he was about to yeah, be killed? Probably both, man. You know, Saul was a little zealous. And, you know, the church had been burned now, you know, a couple times by the Hellenistic speaking Jews. I mean, these Jews were crazy. So they were like, look, man, we're not, we're not gonna go, we're not gonna go try to wrestle that dog again because that thing bites. And so he gets into it with them and they can't refute him. Um, you know, that's what happens when people can't refute you with reason. Oftentimes it turns to violence and there was no discourse. There was no spiritual discourse that could be had. So I think that the apostles were exercising spiritual wisdom and some self-protection. And it says that they kind of pushed him on his way and, and he goes and he listens. Later on, he'll tell us that um, he had a word from the Lord that he needed to leave, that his life was in danger and that he was gonna be killed and it wasn't time. Mm-hmm. So he does leave. But it is interesting that the church enjoys a period of peace. And so God knows what the church needs. And, and, and so, you know, there, there had been some persecution. There had been some real ugliness. They had lost a lot. 
And so, you know, the church can't continually bleed its leaders. We just can't. So God has to give some kind of, you know, holiday from that kind of persecution. Otherwise, there's no leadership. There's no, mm-hmm. there's no people who are present. And so God gives the church this spiritual holiday, a time of peace, a time of healing, a time of restoration so that the gospel can go forward again. So the gospel has moved, the enemy has come in, and now there's, there's just kind of a waiting period, but the gospel is marching forward and they're gonna jump right into Peter who is going to get closer and closer to sharing the gospel with Gentiles. Yeah, that would have been a great place to end the chapter right there. And the church was at peace yeah. and everything was great. So why, you know, Luke kind of keeps going and, and uh, what, what's happening? What's he trying to say now that Pete, we see Peter performing more and more incredible miracles? Uh, you know, Stephanie and I were trying to remember, is this the first person that an apostle's raised from the yes. dead. So, so now you have Peter doing things like this. What, what is Luke trying to communicate here at the end of this chapter? Well, yeah, I think Luke is, is walking this fine line between the expansion of the church and ultimately the authority of the apostle Paul. And he's not trying to divorce himself from the church. So these aren't two separate movements. And that's what Luke is trying to communicate here is that Judaism and Christianity are one religion moving together. Ultimately, we know the split happens and it just gets really, really ugly on their side at first. But then ultimately, Christians respond in hatred and ugliness. And I don't know that they were genuine born-again Christians, but they do it in the name of Christ, which is really, really awful and ugly. And so you know, I think here it's just showing us some extraordinary things that God does in the life of Peter, ultimately to get him to Cornelius' house in chapter 10, because God is moving Peter slowly into embracing the Gentiles. And so we're gonna see that, that he's starting to hang out with them. He's starting to live with them. He's gonna be in Simon the Tanner's house, which is an unclean house. You know, Jews don't hang out with people who make leather because it's gross and stinky and filthy. And Jews wanted, not, they'd wear leather, but they don't want anything to do with people who make it because it's, you know, it's gross. It's, it's literally tan, a tanner, right? Stretches skin and scrapes the skin of the cow that ultimately turns into leather after you scrape it and dry it and process it. But think about that process. I had never thought how gross from that From wet, was bloody skin oh. to leather. So like, that's a process, wet, bloody skin to leather. And Thanks that, for that's saying what that one is. more time. Kind of yeah. makes me want a steak though. Yeah, a juicy steak. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, like you said, you know, Luke's showing something that's expanding. And I, you know, when I look at 28 through 31, the gospels went to Judea, Gal- Galilee, Samaria. Yeah. That should ring a bell for us. Uh, it sounds like Acts one eight, you know, and and the only part of that verse that's yet unfulfilled is the ends of the earth, yeah. which you know, chapter ten. It seems like that's where he's going, um, and, and I I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that that's kind of the outline of Acts. Is yeah. that what Luke is trying to do and say in Acts? And so, how what has just changed here? You know, something has just radically changed in this chapter. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're seeing the ends of the earth coming closer and closer and closer, and it's gonna begin, you know, simply with, you know, this, this, um, these, these amazing miracles, you know, one of a sick person, one of a dead person, and it, it's profound and absolutely amazing. And again, what is God's spirit trying to show? That God's intent was always to reach those who are far from God. And so he's going to help Peter practically walk in that theology. And so, um, because we all, right, all of us wonder, am I in God's will? Is this where God wants me to go? And so God is working in Peter's life to show him continually, yep, this is where, yep, that's what I said. Yep, you need to go that direction. And so he's working powerfully, probably in a way that he's not working in Jerusalem. I mean, we're not hearing about these stories in Jerusalem. And so mm-hmm. where is the power of God on the frontier of the gospel? That's where the power mm-hmm. is. And so you want to experience God's power, get on the frontier of the gospel where, where no one has ever heard. That's when you're going to see the works and power 
of Jesus. That's where it occurs because God wants to drive us to the front lines. Um, you know, we don't need the power in, in the back of the bus like we need it in the front. And so um, Peter is joining the engine of God to save the world. So it's cool. Yeah, and there's actually just one last story here that I want to cover with a question that talks about exactly what's happening with Peter. I think we've talked a lot about Peter did stuff. Here's what verses 36 through 41 says. Now, there was a believer in Joppa named Tabitha, which in Greek is Dorcas, which is really unfortunate yeah, for her. Yeah, and that's your new name, Dorcas. <laughs> Thank you. For the podcast. <laughs> says she was it's biblical. All- Yeah. Well, even though she had a terrible name, it says she was always doing kind things for others and helping the poor. About this time, she became ill and died. Her body was washed for burial and laid in an upstairs room. But the believers had heard that Peter was nearby. So they sent two men to beg him, please come as soon as possible. So Peter returned with them. And as soon as he arrived, they took him to the upstairs room. Peter asked them all to leave the room. Then he knelt and prayed. Turning to the body, he said, get up, Tabitha. And she opened her eyes. When she saw Peter, she sat up. That's incredible. But what I think is interesting, you were talking about power being on the frontier. Peter asks everyone to leave the room before he raises her. Why does he do that? Probably he's crapping his pants, man. He doesn't know, <laughs> he doesn't know what's going to happen, right? I mean, he, this, is, this, is, this is called faith. Mm-hmm. I don't know what God's going to do, but I'm going to ask God to do something great. And, um, you know, so uh, in the Greek, it's uh, Tabitha Kumen, which oh, is Tabitha. T- Tabitha come forth. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus to the little girl was Talitha Kumen. Mm-hmm. So little girl come forth. Wow. So you have to you have to just hear the similarities between mm-hmm. what is said. And so Peter is, you know, I don't I don't think Peter knows exactly what's going to happen here. And but he's going to pray in faith. And that's what I do. I don't know when God's going to heal, and I don't know when God's not going to heal. But I know this that healing isn't going to take place unless I ask. And so I ask God in the name of Jesus Christ to do a miracle. And again, this is not something that happens all the time. That's why the story's in the scriptures. And people need to understand that. Sometimes mm-hmm. I think people read this like, oh yeah, this was Tuesday and Peter's raising people from the dead again because that's what he does on Tuesdays. You know, it's not like Taco Tuesday. It doesn't happen every Tuesday. This is something extraordinary that happened in the life of the church. And I think what's interesting here is, you know, people are always asking, you know, for a miracle. And I think as Christians, we need to ask ourselves, we, we need to re- be real with ourselves and ask ourselves this question. If I have cancer, if I have some terrible disease, how does it benefit the kingdom of God for God to extend my life? Mm. And I don't think people ask that question because what, what people really want is they want their life extended so they can go on with their life, doing their things, loving their family. Right. And I think the issue here is look at Tabitha's life. What did she spend her life doing? Mm-hmm. Taking care of women who had no one. And so it's the church that says, look, she's dead. She's in a better place, but we, we need her. We need her back now in a bad way. And so... You know, I always go back to one of the miracles in the Old Testament, you know, the healing of King Hezekiah, his life is extended 15 years. And so the question is, you know, why would God want this person's life to be extended? Because we're all going to die. And, and, you know, I don't know if I'm going to die tomorrow or if I'm going to be 95 years old when I die. I don't, I don't know. The question is, if God were to extend my life beyond my disease, why would God do that? And the answer I think here is, because the church needs Tabitha. They need her. They need her desperately because she is a woman who sells purple and fine linens and is able to clothe homeless people and clothe and feed you know, hungry people and they need her. And so God does this incredible, incredible work. And uh, it's always interesting. Always look at the gospels when Jesus does something extraordinary. You know, oftentimes remember when he brings back the son or the daughter, it's an only child. He's just moved to extraordinary lengths of compassion in extraordinary, you know, yeah, decisions like Claude's an only child. So, <laughs> Thank uh, you, Lord. Yeah. Oh, Sorry. There's a lot of selfishness. You're not going to make it, Matt. <laughs> yeah. 
So, but God extended your life yes. for some reason. God so has extended both. That's of a good your thing yes. for the purpose of apparently. Gospel. Yeah, we're we here still to need help you. you. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so just be thinking about that. You know, I, we're always so discouraged when a miracle doesn't happen. Hmm. That's why we call them miracles because hmm. they don't happen on a regular basis. They can happen. I've seen them happen. Um, you know, I, I've prayed over a little boy who came back from the dead, and I just prayed over a little girl uh, two weeks ago who I heard died yesterday. Yeah. So does that mean that God doesn't heal? No, he does. I just don't understand. He doesn't have to consult me when, when he does what he does. Hmm. He's God. I'm not. God doesn't owe me anything. I owe him everything. And um, I just think we all need to remind ourselves of that. Being a Christian doesn't mean we don't suffer. It doesn't mean we don't get sick. It doesn't mean terrible things don't happen. It means that if we do die, we know that we get to live forever with Jesus in paradise. That's the good news. That's the good news. And we need to remind ourselves of that, that we live in a very, very broken society. And, and people, you know, like when I was praying with that gentleman this weekend at church, he said, my sister wants to know why me. My question would be, why not me? Why wouldn't I get some terrible cancer? Why wouldn't I get enough? Why wouldn't these things happen? Because they happen all over the place. Mm-hmm. They happen. I mean, right? We do. We. I don't know if you've noticed, but we don't live in a safe world. Mm. Like, I, I don't. I. I think it's amazing. You know. Um, you know, we call we call things tragedies when an airplane crashes. I think why don't we call them miracles when they land? Because it's thousands <laughs> yeah. of pounds of steel with rocket engines on it. I call it a miracle. Yeah, I think it's a miracle. <laughs> we too. fly a lot. Yeah, I do. Oof. And I think about that. I think, I hope my ministry is not done. Yeah. (laughs) I'm glad you're still here. Thank you. Me too. Glad we made it. I'm glad you're here too, Dorcas. If I die and go to heaven, don't bring me back. Yeah. Dorcas and Claude. (laughs) Tag team. No, I'm pretty sure your boys need you. I'd at least have to try. Oh, they got my wife, man. We, you know, my wife was gone for two weeks and we all lost like four pounds. (laughs) I ate peanut butter and jelly every single day. Do they eat Doritos every day? whatever they could scrounge out yeah. of the pantry. For those listening, Claude has the worst eating habits on earth. Listen. He's a skinny guy. And you guy. do this test and you're like super healthy. You know, I know that you're he's skinny, sick. He's healthy on the outside. I know no. you've lost 10 pounds. Do, you, should, do we need to have a push-up contest again? Because no, no. you know you only beat me by one. Yeah. That's what I tell people. Well, I stopped after you quit. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> but you still only beat me by one. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you guys so much, Claude. Thank you so much for filling in yes. with Justin this week. It's fun having you here. We're going to wrap up this week's episode of The Debrief with an inspirational quote. Uh, man was not made for defeat. What about women? Well, that's not what the quote says. I'm not just made. asking a question. It sounds a little sexy. Well, that's because maybe, oh, yeah. Equal. Women is not made a question. Equal yeah. defeat. Equal yeah, I think you need to have a better quote next week. I got that from Hemingway, man. I feel like that's pretty good. <laughs> man was not made for defeat. Hmm? <laughs> Hemingway. <laughs> Try it, man. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Way to end on a. <laughs> <laughs> See your life this week. <laughs>